1: I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude, back with another interview in our year-long series of Attitude Heroes. Let me quickly remind you that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. This month's Attitude Hero is a comedian who spends most of his time these days writing books and performing one man shows across the UK. But when he first hit our TV screens in the 1980s, he was one of the most shockingly funny and outrageous gay men in the public eye. His brilliantly camped turn as the John Collins fan club divided audiences. Fans of alternative comedy lapped him up, but the tabloids were initially hostile towards him and his brand of humour. Or perhaps they just didn't know what to make of his provocative PVC and leather outfits. Anyway, he quickly became a household name and then one particularly lewd joke on live TV in 1993 saw his career take a dip. Today, he's something of a national treasure appearing on shows like Celebrity Big Brother and Strictly Come Dancing, as well as regularly performing in panto. He is Julian Clary. And you don't need me to tell you to expect our Chat to be explicit, now do you? Coming up, we'll hear how the young Julian was affected by homophobia.
2: It was full-on sort of violent persecution.
1: Yeah. And
2: I remember thinking that, I've just got to get through this bit of my life, and then it's not always going to be like this, because I think that's how I survived, by knowing that there was a life outside of that. The people that I was looking at and reading, Quentin Crisp and the books of Muriel Spark, that's what saw me through it, I
1: think. About the time he visited a country where homosexuality was illegal.
2: It was discussed in Parliament there. And uh, anyway, someone made some sort of death threat and I was given a bodyguard <gasps> who slept outside my hotel room.
1: And about how criticism spurs him on.
2: It only fed the fire, it only made me f- feel more sure of what I was doing. It was, I was delighted to offend people, delighted especially Daily Mail readers.
1: So, join me in a house by a rather noisy London street to chat to Julian Clary. Julian, thank you for having us in your glamorous London home. That's right, you won't be stopping long, will you? (laughs) Not too long, don't worry. But I thought you lived in some, like, Kent Manor house or something.
2: Oh, no, I live in two places. So, if I want to be in London, this is here. And if I feel like being rustic, I go to Kent.
1: Okay. well, I tell you what, we'll we'll come back to the manor house in Kent later. Can we start by going straight back to the start of your story? Or certainly when I first became aware of you, because I first became aware of you as a teenager, when you, well, were, you were a teenager, or I, I was a teenager. <laughs> when you were doing the John Collins fan club, trick or treats, sticky moments, those kind of TV shows. And even though I wasn't comfortable about my gayness at the time, I was always comfortable with you. There was something non threatening. I mean, I know that you're, you would wear PVC bondage gear and make jokes about anal sex, but it was always like, sweetly and non-threatening. Do you know what I
2: mean? It's because I'm so well-spoken, I expect. And I also think comedy is just kind of relaxes people. So um, I wasn't just walking down the street in PPC. I was <laughs> trying to make people laugh. And what, what I remember thinking with Sticky Moments and those sort of shows was that if I could create my world, so the, the set or the stage, whatever, that's my world, and everything... I was perfectly normal in my world, and so then I would invite um, probably heterosexual contestants into that world, and they would be the outsider. So it was, it was... I vaguely remember thinking that was a good comic device to turn things around.
1: But it's interesting to me that there was a whole thought process behind it. You obviously thought... You'd obviously decided that you were going to do the risque innuendo, so you kind of were thinking, how can I well, it sugarcoat didn't... the pill or whatever...
2: Well, it evolved, because I've been on the... I didn't just suddenly appear on television, I've been on the cabaret circuit, and that was a very left-wing sort of world, but it was also a straight world. And mm. so the same... ..the same kind of thoughts applied there as to how I could make myself feel like I was in charge, really.
1: But you never considered toning down the humour? No, I didn't. I didn't know what else I was supposed to talk about. I, mean, I was... I was <laughs> I was a
2: very self-evidently gay person, and the, and then the stage character was that magnified up. So it, that's what it became all about. And it was something people didn't, didn't seem to know much about, the mechanics of gay sex and the nitty-gritty of it. And so as well as... I'm not pretending I thought, oh, I'll educate people. <laughs> but it just, it's just a sort of comedy area that no-one else... Tried. I thought that would. I don't know. I didn't really think about it. Just in retrospect, that's what I think happened.
1: It's interesting though because it was a straight world, even though it was very alternative. That whole comedy movement you were in, it was a, it was reacting against a straight world, wasn't it? Even though there was nobody else gay, really.
2: Yeah, it was a very gay-friendly world, um, but it was. There were quite harsh times and. Um, as soon as I stepped out of that world, as soon as I stepped, you know, so I started doing shows for Channel 4 and things and you, you were exposed to mainstream media, then, that's, then, then I sort of um, thought, now we know where we stand.
1: Yeah, so interestingly, so when I was researching your story, I just remember you being hugely popular and everybody loving you. These shows that I'm talking about, Trick or Treat, and particularly Sticky Moments, which I used to love, I never really was aware of the, some of the horrible things people said about you, but they were quite um, horrible, weren't they? Some things that critics said and people in the media.
2: Mm. Yes, but, of course, it only fed the fire. It only made me f- feel more um, sure of what I was doing. It was, I was delighted to offend people. Delighted. Especially Daily Mail readers.
1: Oh, that's interesting, because I was trying to work out... One thing I really wanted to talk to you about today was... Is there a vulnerability there, or were you...? Cos I always thought you looked hard as nails. Did you? Yeah. I thought you looked... I thought you looked hard as nails. Maybe that's because being another gay man who can't pass us straight, you've you've no choice in the matter. You're on the front line, aren't you? It's like you say. Um, and I just assume that those kind of gay men are hard as nails.
2: No, well, I think there's different things. There's being I was very tenacious and I was very... I don't know, I'm using the past tense. I, I am very <laughs> tenacious and very um, sort of determined and I enjoyed confronting people. But I think you can still be, and it's probably better if you are sensitive at the same time. Most comics are sensitive, I think.
1: But how can you create humour unless you have a sensitivity to pick up on what gets through to people and things like that?
2: Yes, I mean Lily Savage was hard as nails. I don't think I was.
1: <laughs> so in that case, then when people did say horrible things about you when you were when you went out into the mainstream on Channel Four and things, how did this affect you emotionally? Oh, well, I don't think my emotions came into it.
2: It was only the Daily Mail and certain. I mean. I had nice press as well,
1: oh yeah, no. So yeah, that yeah.
2: was that was a you know I was able to balance it. No, I th- I thought this was all part of the game and um, that period where you, you know everything was suddenly taking off and all of that that was that was all good fun and I remember touring Australia and New Zealand and we went to Tasmania where um, at that time homosexuality was illegal and. Um, it was discussed in, the, in Parliament there. And uh, anyway, someone made some sort of death threat and I was given a bodyguard who slept outside my hotel room. And um, I thought that was all fascinating and I didn't feel uh, threatened or anything. I just thought it was a bizarre and, and funny incident.
1: And rather than being threatened, did you not feel upset? Well, I was threatened,
2: clearly. Someone yeah, th- yeah. <laughs> So I felt that, but I thought it's, what, what, it's not very likely that someone's going to follow through with this. No, it, it just gave... It made the whole tour quite exciting and it made the performance in Tasmania, you know, it gave it a bit of a lift. I did not know what it all comes down to. I don't know what your motivations are. Because I had a hard time at school and because my father um, was, he was... He is a very nice man, but he... You know, it was a world he didn't know anything about, so maybe... That was where, who I was really trying to convince.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Because, um, interestingly, so I was bullied at school as well for the same reasons, and what I sometimes find is, even though I'm hard as nails, I like to think I am, when people say horrible things about me now, it can reopen old wounds. But what you're saying about the early days of your career, when you were only 10 years out of school, Actually, so those wounds were still quite fresh. Yes, it was revenge. Oh, was that what it was? Now we're getting down to it.
2: Yes, it still is revenge. I think, well, I shall I shall leave... All the things that were a problem at school, you can turn around. All the things I was bullied for and it all become what were a problem for some people were the very things that became assets or became, you know, characteristics of what I was doing. So the effeminacy, the voice, the gayness, the clothes, the walk, the hair, everything, um, that's what I became and that's what um, the act became anyway.
1: I do think that bullying of gay children is so horrendous because particularly in our, when we were growing up, you couldn't... Unlike any other form of bullying, for being fat or red hair or whatever, you could talk to your parents about it. In my day, anyway, my parents were brilliant, but it was so shameful what other kids used to say about me, and the teachers just used to let it go because they were just so uncomfortable around it. There was literally no way you could tell anybody. Do you know what I mean? I do. It's such a horrible trauma to go through at such an early age. And I don't think the word bullying covers no. it. I don't like
2: bullying it because it sounds like, you know, someone just sort of giving you a poke in the back. It was full-on sort of violent persecution.
1: Yeah. People say bullying, you nowadays, it's one of those words that's become overused, it's lost all its power. Mm. Um, in my day, it was just everybody hating me for who I was and expressing it all the time. And that, how are you supposed to like yourself, love yourself, have any kind of self-respect?
2: Well, you have to escape, don't you, one way or the other, into books or... And, and I was always very sure, because I, w- I went to... A, a school run by Benedictine monks and it was very, in the 70s, it was still as if it was the 40s there and I remember thinking that I've just got to get through this bit of my life and then it's not always going to be like this because I think that's um, how I survived, by knowing that there was a life outside of that and, you know, the, the people that I was looking at and reading, Quentin Crisp and um, the books of Muriel Spark which are all about... Well, some of them are about the importance of being an individual, so I, I, I... That's what saw me through it,
1: I think. It's amazing that you found them, because actually now, obviously, with the online universe, people can find those voices to be a comfort to them, or young children can, whereas in those days... I had a friend as well. I had a friend in a very similar boat to me, so it was like
2: Us Against the World.
1: Oh, see, that's fascinating, because my memory of... Gay bullying is, I know we said we're not calling it bullying, is that there was anybody else like you, you couldn't be an ally with them because it would almost draw more attention to your gayness. You had to distance yourself from them, but what you're saying is the opposite. It is the opposite, and also
2: the whole attention thing, although it was negative attention, I I think part of us quite liked that. I've got a school report that says, this is when I was 14, I think Julian is either languid or superior. (laughs) <laughs> and this was a criticism, but I think that's, that's, that's exactly how I felt. It was a sort of languid indifference to what was happening or trying to appear indifferent, so as not to give them any satisfaction. And, and feeling superior to it, because I knew that there was a life outside.
1: Can you remember now, all these years later, how much it hurt... Or did you shut down the, your capacity to feel hurt? No, no, I did feel hurt, and I think things like that that happen
2: at a formative age are just awful. And um, but as I said earlier, I think that's probably what gave me the psychological need to to um, go on stage and be an outrageous effeminate homosexual, just to as a sort of payback.
1: If you could speak to that little boy that you were then, what would you say to him? Probably what I said at the time, that um,
2: all of life is not like this. And I think I was very, I was sort of encouraged in that way of thinking by my mother, who I think she, although I didn't really talk to her about it, I think she knew what was going on. They usually do, don't they? and, And there's a certain sort of, indifference to it, that, you know, it's, it's, it's their problem, not mine, is probably what I'd say.
1: So when you started performing then, you've said you played up the campness, so, so to what extent was the kind of, the campness, the sequins, the feathers, was it kind of like an armour, was it like a shield, you were going into battle, you were getting your revenge on these people and the world that had been so unkind to you? Well, yes,
2: it was a bit of that, but it was also just um, what I wanted to... That was my idea of showbiz. Um, My sister was a showgirl and she was dressing up in feathers and makeup. and she's four years older than me, so when I was 12, going and sitting in her dressing room, I thought, well, this is the life. (laughs) So I knew whatever I wanted to do. I couldn't be a showgirl, (laughs) but I thought that's something I will, you know, incorporate... So it it was a bit of of both, a bit of thinking this is protection and some sort of armour, as you say, but it was also just, I like dressing up.
1: (laughs) By the way, I'd love to use that sentence at some point. My sister was a showgirl. Well, it's true. She's a tiller girl. (laughs) Oh, was she? Yeah. Fantastic. Very, very
2: tall and glamorous, and she had a wardrobe full of um, feathers and... uh, and sequins and makeup, and so um, uh, you can imagine what I did when everyone was out.
1: <laughs> so, if she was four years older than you, do you think she got it quite early on? Yes, I think she knew what I was up to. <laughs> did she ever talk to you about it?
2: Yes, she did. She did. Um, I, she was dancing at the Lido in Paris, and uh, I love your sister. I know. I went to stay with her when I was sixteen, and. Uh, and, and I, I wasn't. I wasn't wanting to talk about it then. But she, I mean, she was. There were lots of gay dancers in the in the show that she was working on. And everything. It was. And she was the. And she, she clearly knew what was going on with me. But it was. I was. I don't know. I was. Uh, not. I was great. I'm grateful in retrospect that she uh, tried to talk to me about it. But um, you just weren't ready. No, I don't. I don't remember opening up to her about it then.
1: And how about, um, so that's your sister and your mum, so how about other gay men? When you first became famous and you were playing up this whole camp thing, how did other gay men respond to you? Because some gay men can be very disparaging about camp, the whole culture of camp Mm. and effeminacy.
2: They can, and I could as well, I think. Um, Because at that time, Lee Barry and Boy George and that sort of set of people were... Out and about in the clubs, all dressed up, and that was their whole kind of purpose for the evening. Was to you know, they spend, spend all day getting dressed and going out. Whereas I would go and do my show, and then I couldn't wait to take everything off and put my ripped jeans on. And um, so, were you slightly ashamed of it then? Did I did not you... ashamed, but I didn't. I didn't, certainly didn't want. To, I'd, I'd had my thrill of performing. I'd, I'd been on stage, done it in some room above a pub, so I didn't want to. Go out and parade around like that. So I remember it was quite sniffy about them when I saw them.
1: But what do you think about gay men who are disparaging about camp and the kind of camp shaming that goes on in our community? I mean, I don't know if you are aware of hookup apps like Grinder, but you very often get on them no femmes, no camp, mask for mask and all that crap. No fats, no femmes. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, me thinks they may protest too much. <laughs> yes, I know they, they, they would like us all to go around wearing um, gingham shirts and grow beards and everything. Lumberjack shirts and all that. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's the drag queens and the camp the men that are the, the fierce ones, I think. And, uh, you know, in a crisis, we'll be the ones to get things done.
1: Well, we never had any choice in the matter. We could never pass us straight. So we were always on the front line, whether we liked it or not. And we always had to fight. We had to learn to be fighters, didn't we, at did an early age? What, yeah, I mean, it's just luck of the draw, isn't it? Whether you are um, very clearly
2: um, a camp game man as you walk down the road for all to see, or if, you, if you're sort of walking like a cowboy and uh, you think no-one knows, um, there's a different experience of life. I guess.
1: But so much of that is learned behaviour anyway, isn't it? Mm. I mean, actually, my campness, my effeminacy wasn't learnt, it was just the way that I was. I suppose you can play it, play it up or not, as you're saying that you did. But, um... Yes, I don't remember um, it being a great
2: affectation. That I, No. It just... Um, it's almost, almost a sort of genetic thing.
1: But have you been on a journey with your sense of camp or effeminacy because I noticed one of your most recent stand-up tours was called The Joy of Mincing and I suddenly thought is this kind of you know reveling in the joy of it is this kind of the end of the journey has it been a a journey to get to this point I might do another tour called The Final Mince (laughs) (laughs) Well the joy of
2: mincing was like the joy of sex really it was um It's a joyful thing. I'm not going to use the word journey, even if you did.
1: (laughs) Why is it a bit X-factor? It's
2: overused.
1: Oh, Oh, I'm sorry, darling. Sorry to use hackneyed expressions. (laughs) Um, All right, but let's go back to this idea of you being on the front line. So were there times in your career when you really felt you were on the front line, whether you liked it or not? Well, what times are you thinking of when I might have felt as if I was
2: on the front line?
1: Well, how about the Comedy Awards and the... You know, you... Famous, was it 1993 at the British Comedy Awards? I expect so. You um, made the joke, which I was watching at the time. I would have been about 16 or something. My maths isn't very good. But I remember um, thinking it was hilarious. And laughing out loud with my mum, who I was watching it with at the time, you made a joke about I've just... this set looks like Hamster Teeth and I've just been fisting Norma Lamont or something. Yeah. And... Um, there was a backlash, wasn't there? There was a big outcry from some people. Mm, yeah, yes, there, there was, from uh, some tabloids.
2: and um, It wasn't a very pleasant experience, you know, that sort of feeling that um, I'd caused all this outrage. But at, at the same time, I, I really hadn't caused... You know, it was a sort of whipped-up storm about nothing. I think there were 12 complaints to London Weekend Television... I, I don't think the nation was... Outraged. Well, no, it was just, it was just something that... Um, but that sort of feeling of infamy and all that, That the next day, I did feel like I was in trouble, yes. If you put it in the context of my life at the time, it wasn't that important. There were other things going on. And I was... I think I was on a lot of Valium at the time, things that lower your um, your defences in that... Any, any sort of sense of what would be an appropriate thing to say was not there on that evening at the Comedy Awards. So I was in a bit of a state, but it wasn't because of that backlash, you know. It was other things. I mean, I, I, it's, very, it's a very neat thing to say, looking back, oh, yes, well, you see, and I do say this sometimes just to get the subject out of the way, that... I needed some space in my life to deal with bereavement and stuff. Therefore, I said this in order to clear my diary and then I could go away and recover. I don't really think that's um, what it was like at the time.
1: But if you look back now, you're this national treasure, Strictly Come Dancing, Celebrity Big Brother, you know, best-selling novels, all that. Do you ever, do you ever think... Um... God, when I was at my lowest ebb, I had no idea that I would suddenly be celebrated widely by the public. I didn't
2: think I'd be able to string out a career this long, no, I didn't think, um, I mean, it was very, it's a very deliberately lightweight act and everything I do is a sort of variation on that. So um, to find that I've never had to do a day's work (laughs) is, um, is a surprise.
1: Coming up in part two, Julian tells us about a rather embarrassing period in his personal life. Um, I had to take a
2: sabbatical from anal sex <laughs> because I had anal warts. And um, yes, so during that period, I, um, I wasn't indulging in that particular practice, but uh, I was hardly being a saint
0: We're going to
1: get back to Julian now, but a quick reminder that Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. You've talked about what the kids at school would say about gays, but what kind of things were said in the house? Your, do you remember your mum and dad saying anything about gay people? No. I had an uncle on the Isle of Wight
2: called Ron, and he lived very openly with his partner, Jack, and they wore sort of matching floral shirts, and um, everyone knew what the, what the setup up was, but it was, I think, in that era, you know, as long as you didn't... Um,
1: didn't ram it down people's throats. Well, I don't want
2: to use that expression, but <laughs> as long as you didn't um, go on about it and frighten the horses, I think it was fine.
1: So, do you remember asking your mum and dad about Uncle Ron and why he lived with a man and what they said? No, I didn't. I don't remember questioning it at all, really. And what about when you started to become aware of your own um, attraction to other boys? Did you not look at Uncle Ron with any curiosity then and ask? about him
2: no I suppose I, I've eventually worked it out no I and ne- I never um, to predict your next question <laughs> I never sat my parents down and had a sort of coming out thing they may still not know
1: <laughs> that actually wasn't going to be my next question I was actually going to say if your, your dad was a policeman wasn't he yes so he wouldn't he didn't ever come home and talk about his day at work and because um, if gays were criminals then, did it just never come up around the kitchen table? No. No, not. I didn't really listen to my father very
2: much. <laughs> so he may have been saying all manner of things, but uh, I, would, I would have glazed over.
1: So why then, if you, were so, um, if you were so out there with your comedy and so kind of celebratory of your gayness, why did you never sit them down and tell them?
2: Well, I didn't think they were that stupid. I mean, I just think they must have known. I remember being... I did my first big interview, and it was... it was um, The headline was something about, you know, gay Clary, and um, I told them that this was coming out because it was quite exciting. And um, and then, then when I went and got it myself and I saw that that's what the article was about, I remember being nervous, phoning them up, and they just said, oh, very nice article and all that, and that was... That was a sort of subtle way of saying it's absolutely fine.
1: Did you never um think about the conversations they must have had with each other? I wonder what there's you know, if you think your mum always intuited, I wonder what she used to say to your dad. Do you think she ever brought it up with your dad or No, I think,
2: you know, like a lot of parents, they were they were wanting their son to be happy, and um, I think there was a perception that a gay life was a lonely one. Yeah, and um, I'm making this up, but I think that might have been what their concern was.
1: I know my mum and dad were concerned about that, and you know, when I was growing up, people thought gays um, died of AIDS, you know, you were on your own, you couldn't, you would be hounded out of jobs, loitering around public lavatories. Yes, yeah. why would anybody want that for a child? Do you know what I mean? Want that for yeah. their... Ch- well, would any parent welcome that news?
2: Yes. But I think, you know, as, as things change, then they obviously got over that thought.
1: I also know that you were brought up Catholic, as was I. We were both altar boys. I sometimes speak to other Catholic gays and there is a lot of residual anger around some of the ideas and teachings they were subjected to as children. And I'm a bit like that, actually. But how do you feel about your Catholic upbringing?
2: Um, I was very fervently Catholic till I was about 13. I loved it, and I, I loved being an altar boy, and I, I still think it's all very beautifully done, you know, the Catholic Mass. and oh, it. I and thought
1: it was boring. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, you
2: no, I didn't. I was very into it all. And it was only when I... Um, became famous and I I used to get very self-conscious going to mass with my mother and um, because of the nature of my notoriety and and thinking that everyone was thinking what's he doing here and I stopped going to communion and um, stopped going to church for a while because I used to have these panic attacks as soon as I walked in and that and I was I mean I I was outraged by the Catholic and still am you know there's a kind of stance on things but funny thing the Catholic Church you know I think you can you can take from it what you want and ignore the rest and I think a lot of Catholics do that
1: is that what you do now then would you still describe yourself as a Catholic
2: yes well I'd still have it on you know I think if you're a Catholic you're a Catholic it's like
1: well technically but I always I always take the atheist box on those forms now well, I'm a lapsed Catholic, obviously,
2: but I still go to church with my mother if I'm at home. I still quite like it.
1: So, you're growing up, so you moved to, you moved to London to go to university, and um, one thing I love most about your autobiography is the whole section on your kind of sexual awakening. And I love the fact that you refuse to be slut-shamed, you're totally sex-positive about it all... It sounds like you had a lot of fun as a Catholic boy from Surbiton. Yes,
2: well, it was quite a late starter. And, um, yes, I think once I got the taste for it, there was no um, stopping me.
1: Do you think it was slightly... When I spoke to Andy Bell from Erasure, he was saying that there'd been kind of a lid on and he'd been des- his sexual kind of desires had been desperate to break out for so long. And when they were finally allowed out and the top was taken off, the lid was taken off, he went slightly... Mad, and a lot of gay men say this. Yes, once I got the hang of it, and it became the
2: the whole purpose of a night out was to take someone home. I mean, don't, don't know that that's changed much.
1: Well, I don't think you have to go out to do that now. Uh, no, well, that's, <laughs> that's
2: changed. Um, yes, now I remember all that.
1: Well, and shortly after this, you entered a period, historically, when all gay men who were sexually active were at risk of catching AIDS because... We didn't catching HIV rather because we didn't know at the time how it was passed on. People only wore condoms as a contraceptive if they were straight. This must have been. What do you remember? What do you remember about that time? Well, we remember a time when we were. It was suggested
2: you don't take home an American because it was yeah. thought that Americans were the devil's work. And uh, it's a funny thing, you know, because there was. There was a lot of fear, and there was a lot of um, it, it was a mysterious thing, um, but at the same time, it, it sort of somehow increased the need to party and 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 almost be reckless about it. You know, I think there was we might all be dead in a couple of years, so let's just get on with it.
1: But, actually, I read in your autobiography, very honestly, you say that you caught a certain STD or STI, as we're all supposed to call them now, and um, you had to take a sabbatical from sex for a few years and this effectively saved you. Um, I had to take
2: a sabbatical from anal sex (laughs) because I had anal warts. And, um, yes, so during that period... um, that i um, i wasn't indulging in that particular practice but uh, i was hardly being a saint
1: no but presumably that saved you um not having not having anal sex in that period when it was so dangerous and nobody knew what the dangers were hurrah for anal warts <laughs> but you know what joking apart um, I've, had, I've had STDs, and as somebody who's grown up being told that you're disgusting and dirty for being gay, I have always found it difficult when I've had any STIs, STDs, because um, it makes you it, I don't know, it takes me back to that. You, I feel dirty, and you know, I've always felt dirty and disgusting again. Did you? Uh, can you remember how you felt when you had? I was horrified. It was
2: this awful secret. And um, I remember going for all the treatments and everything and then um, having them surgically removed. Yes, it was a sort of awful thing. It was terribly embarrassing.
1: Looking back at the AIDS crisis of the 80s, what are your abiding memories of the gay community at the time. How do you think, did we come together? Did we, were we fearful of each other? Paul O'Grady spoke to us brilliantly about this and, um, you know, because he was very active on some of the AIDS wards, helping people. And, um, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I sometimes think young gay men have no idea what, what it was like then. What Was there a sense of community? Yes,
2: there was, and there was... Sense of tragedy, really, you know, because people were—it seemed to happen very quickly, and and um, people would disappear. You know, people you just kind of saw out on the scene, and then word would get round that you didn't even necessarily know their name that they were ill. My friend Stephen was was terribly ill for a while, but he used to, he used to slip out of the ward. In the evening, in order to go to heaven for a few hours mm-hmm. and then go back <laughs> and plug himself back in. He was determined to have a good time, but also I think he just wanted to be with, wanted to forget. And because no one really knew, no one really knew the people that I knew, the treatment they were getting was the doctors were doing their best, but they didn't know, they were throwing all these drugs at them. And uh, my partner, Christopher, was. Um, I think he took 18 pills every morning and quite often he would then be sick mm-hmm. half an hour later and he didn't know whether to take them again because they hadn't got into his system therefore they weren't doing what they're supposed to do and all these different drugs had different consequences you know they might help one thing but cause another it was it was very chaotic and um there was no real sense of um that you were going to get better or that mm-hmm. you you were in safe hands, you know. It just, just, just felt like everyone was scrabbling about, doing their best, but that you were being experimented on.
1: And if you lost a close friend and your partner Christopher, as you mentioned, you know, how did you, how, you know, how did you get through this chaos? They must, this must have been horrendous time for you. Yes, I mean, I remember looking after both of them
2: and quite enjoying. Um, I'm quite good at looking after people when they're ill so I was quite, I quite liked that but Christopher was very ill and living at home with me at the same same time as I was uh, on tour I think, so I, or, or recording I think the second series of Sticky Moments so I would leave him in bed with Fanny the Wonder Dog, my dog that I had at the time and, uh, and, and go off for a few hours and make be funny, make people laugh, and then come home to this sort of bizarre thing, and then then him having night sweats and having to get up and deal with all that. And so there was two very different worlds going on at the same time, and it was um, probably helpful for looking after Christopher in that I wasn't totally immersed in his illness with him, and he was a very um, cheerful person right to the end, and so it was. You know, he would make me laugh and we would we would have fun, to an extent, in the midst of all the tragedy, but so. It,
1: but it's interesting that you talk about working, being on tour and being on telly at the time, because I'd said earlier was putting on the sequins and the feathers and the makeup like armor, but it kind of was in more ways than one, actually. If you were going through all this at home, then you were putting on the good front, you know. Well, look there's
2: you know, being on stage can be very um, healing and therapeutic. And I remember when Christopher died, Paul Merton and I were writing another TV series. And Paul said, because I was in a bit of a state, but he said, oh, the good thing about comedy is you can only think of one thing at a time. So at least while we were in that room writing funny things, I wasn't dwelling on that. So it was just a sort of uh, escapism.
1: How do you feel about all the advances in HIV treatment now and the whole PrEP thing, you know, and infection rates are going down? Presumably when you were in the midst of the crisis, you never thought this day would come. No,
2: it's miraculous, you know, it's, it's amazing. No, I don't think we... we did. Um, and I think Christopher died just before the drugs that would prolong life were
1: sorted out and uh, that was a
2: great shame for him.
1: How do you feel about the HIV prevention drug, PrEP, that's now around, but the NHS doesn't offer it in England? You can get it in Scotland. That's mm. sort of false economy,
2: really, I think. It would be much cheaper to put your moral judgments aside and offer that drug as opposed to the lifetime of treatment that you might need after someone has HIV. Mm-hmm.
1: And how do you feel about... I asked you about the gay community when um, you were living through the AIDS crisis. How do you feel about the gay community now? I mean, what about the scene? Do you ever go out on the scene now? I can't think of anything worse. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Well, because I'm 58,
2: and and I don't want to hang around, you know, wherever people hang around now. I mean, I absolutely loved it. I was out every night um, at the appropriate age. Um,
1: you don't want to dip your toe back into the water occasionally. Relive your glory days. What's the elephant's graveyard? Is that still there? In Quebec? The city of Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> is it still there?
2: Yes. Oh, God bless them. Well, that was where I should go if I wanted to go out. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I don't I don't go out there. I didn't go out anywhere, frankly. I, um, I like being at home.
1: Well, you've mentioned um, being 58, and our community is often accused of being obsessed with youth and um, that we're not very good at ageing. Um, how do you feel about all that? Do you think um, we are a youth-obsessed community? How do you feel about ageing? Well, I think we always were.
2: I remember being absolutely horrified if anyone over the age of 30 as so much as glanced at me. Um, so, yes, it's just a fact, isn't it?
1: Do you think we should be better at celebrating age in um, an experience in our community? Oh.
2: Well, um, how would we go about doing that?
1: Well, I don't know, not being horrified. If a third, somebody who's over 30, gives you the eye in the bar.
2: I'm just being honest, that, that <laughs> was, that's how I felt. And I never would want to sleep with anyone older than me. Um, but then there's a sort of crossover period, isn't there, when you reach 30 yourself.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, but do you feel all right, personally, as an individual, about the ageing process? I
2: don't feel very old, actually. I mean, I know I am. But um, I don't feel any different. My, my great-aunt of 103 has just died, and I was, was asking her about the same things, you know, what does it feel like? She said, oh, I'm, I still feel 18 until I try and get out of my chair. So I think, um, I think that's what happens.
1: And you've, um, you have, as you say, retired from the scene, you've calmed down, you've got, you've, you're married, mm. and you live in this farmhouse in Kent... So congratulations all round. It's a completely different, if I, if I were to re-watch some of those early sketch shows and miss out everything that happened in the middle, it's quite a leap, isn't it? From anal sex jokes in Feather Bowers and Sequins right through to living in a manor house in Kent being married to a man.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, I still make anal sex jokes though. So there is, <laughs> there is a, a kind of thread going through. Um, well, you never know what, what, how you're going to turn out, do you? And, um, no, I'm surprised myself. Um, it's, a very, it's a very sort of conscious decision to do, do age-appropriate things with me. And I thought this... Um, Ten years ago, and I thought, oh, I ought to really um, go and live in the country now and write books because um, it's unseemly to do anything else... So I did.
1: How funny that you never used to care what people thought and you were so kind of like getting your revenge on the society that had rejected you and now you want to conform by being age-appropriate. Wouldn't it be more fitting to, you know, when I'm an old lady, I'm going to wear purple or whatever that um, poem is, you know? You would never go down the Madonna route of still wearing a leotard and PVC gear at your age. No,
2: I'd be mortified. I think that would be... Terribly embarrassing.
1: But what about, what about um, people who say, oh, your lifestyle now is heteronormative, you've forgotten what you were about in the early days? Has anybody said that to you?
2: No, only you. <laughs> um, no, there is an element of truth, the, the heteronormative. I must use that word. I've been married since November, and I'm not sure I like it. You know, it's funny business, funny um, business. I feel, I feel a certain sort of loss of freedom. I'm, I'm very happy with my husband. And there was a sort of month of feeling euphoric about being married. But, um, but now, uh, part of me mourns my single status. I think, ooh. And I do think, um, I think people have to think about it before they get
1: married. Do you think the filthy humor might be um, struggling to burst through again? Um, it's never gone away. I, I, um, it's just what was
2: very shocking in the 80s is not, is not really going to shock anyone now. So um, I think my uh, professional life has become more about um, making people laugh for its own sake.
1: Well, that's interesting. Shall I tell you what people always say to me? And I've heard other gay men say this a lot about the outrageous ones who make filthy jokes oh, you should tone yourself down to get a man, cos, you know, men don't like that kind of thing. Did you... Was there any sense that you had to... Well, obviously, you haven't toned yourself down to get your man, but um, how does he feel about your racy, raunchy humour in your past?
2: Well, first of all, I don't like the whole concept of getting a man. <laughs> it's <laughs> if well, it's easy for you to say, cos you've got one, some sort of trap you've got to lure them into <laughs> that I've got you. Um, he... He's very funny, my husband. So he makes me laugh, and I make him laugh. And uh, I think that's that's kind of uh, most important thing for us. Um, he's not particularly enthralled by my career, or you know, he came. I, I did a fifty-date tour, and he came once.
1: Oh, really?
2: That's um, <laughs> not been forgotten.
1: Were you were you any more nervous when he came?
2: I don't like him coming. No, I, I don't. It doesn't thrill me and he's not particularly complimentary Uh, he didn't marry me because he he loves my act
1: and what about we joke about the heteronormative thing but there's a huge debate around open relationships in the gay community we get so much traffic on our websites and social media channels when we write anything about open relationships it's a big topic Mm. um how do you feel about them
2: I think everyone should do what they want to do. I mean, I, I think you can make life quite complicated for yourself, but if you can handle it all, um, then so be it. Oh, no, I, I can't think how I'd fit it in.
1: <laughs> all right, well, tell us. We've talked about it. So we've gone from the beginning of your life and all the gay bullying right through to being celebrated for being gay. We're, the 50, we're in the 50th anniversary year of decriminalisation. Um, so much has changed in that time. Have you yet kind of stopped to think about this? What are your thoughts about the 50th anniversary? Um...
2: I mean, it's obviously all good and hurrah and all of that. I'd, I had a gay lecturer at college who used to reminisce about how marvellous it was in the forties, um, sniffing round St James's Park and picking up guardsmen. And <laughs> and I don't remember that obviously, but he got very misty-eyed about that <laughs> and the, the sense of danger and all of that is quite erotic, I think. And and in in the late 70s, 80s, you know, I, when I started going out, it wasn't like that. But all the gay bars had, you know, frosted glass or blacked out windows. You certainly, it was thought you didn't want to be seen going, you know, in or out. There was a certain, certain um, furtiveness about it all. And, um, and it's, it's obviously great that that's all gone and now you can stand outside Rupert Street and all of that. But I would love to have been around in the 40s as well.
1: Yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? Because I can see how that was erotic, the sense of danger. I totally get that. But at the same time, the fact that, you know, we had to hide away in public toilets, we had to hide away behind frosted glass in bars. How could we have thought about ourselves as anything other than a dirty secret? Mm, I guess you can't have it both ways. No. And in order to have, you know, a healthy, loving, respecting relationship, must have been really, really hard to do that in those days when everywhere you look, all of society is telling you that you're a dirty, shameful secret.
2: Except Uncle Ron managed.
1: (laughs) He did. He did. Here's to Uncle Ron. (laughs) Anyway, Julian Clary, thank you very much. Thank you. julian clary there recorded at his home in london earlier this month we're now halfway through our year-long series of podcasts which are designed to mark 50 years since the law in england and wales started to accept homosexuality thank you so much for listening thank you for leaving reviews and thanks for rating us please do keep telling your friends and please subscribe if you haven't already done so These podcasts are sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to let you know who my next special guest is. For now, take care, and I'll see you next time on Attitude Heroes.